exciting commitment that you have there in doing ministry. And uh, I could give that same shout out to Half Moon and Saratoga and Latham. God is doing awesome things among us. Where we're in a series called Boot Camp Basics. And today we come to a foundational lesson again. This is from James 4. And it's a lesson about humility versus pride. Jesus told a story which has become a classic, really one of the best known stories in history. It's about a father and his two sons. Well, the youngest son, you see, decided that he wanted his part of the inheritance early. He wanted to enjoy it now. Now, that was essentially like saying to his dad, listen, I wish you were dead, old man, so I could get the life insurance. But the father shocked everyone when he liquidated some assets and actually gave the youngest son his desire. Well, this young man then packed his bags and set off for Vegas and began to live the party lifestyle. But as time went on, it didn't go that well. He found himself in a miserable job feeding pigs. His friends were gone, and he was down on his luck. And he said to himself, look, even the servants, the hired hands who work around my father's place are living a lot better than I am. What am I thinking? He humbled himself, and with humility and pride broken, he headed home. As his father saw him on the way, the dad again, in a move of kindness and tremendous humility, went out and ran. No Jewish father would do that. He put all of his dignity behind and he ran to meet his son and embraced him and threw a big party for him. And everybody came to the party except the older brother. And the older brother was bent out of shape about all this. And he said to his dad, look, I've slaved away for you all these years. You never threw a party for me. And then this incredible story that Jesus told, think about it. Everyone in this story ends up happy. Except the older brother. Yes, he was hardworking. Yes, he was dedicated, but he was also arrogant and miserable. The younger brother was reckless and irresponsible, but at least he had enough wisdom to humble himself and come home. Now, there's a beautiful principle that emerges in this story, and it's reiterated a number of times throughout Scripture. And I want us to put it on the screen. Here is the principle I'm talking about. Pride seems to be the tipping point for every epic story of failure. Now let's think about that for just a few minutes here. If you go to Genesis 11, you read the story of the Tower of Babel. And again, it's a story about how pride is the tipping point for failure. The people had become so overflowingly confident in their abilities. They wanted to build a tower to the sky. And in their arrogance, they had kind of forgotten God. And so God came, and pride was the tipping point, and God scattered them, and their language was confused. 
pride was the tipping point for failure. Or think about years later when the king Nebuchadnezzar, in ancient history, considered one of the mightiest, most powerful kings ever. He ruled for decades in Babylon and saw a lot of progress. But his accomplishments caused him to be arrogant. And one evening, as he strutted on the top of the great wall surrounding his city, he said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built? God had had enough of his pomposity. And God said, this is the last straw for you. You are going to be separated from the people and you are going to graze on grass like an ox. That condition is known, by the way, as lycanthropy. And for years, Nebuchadnezzar was plagued with that disease until he finally humbled himself, came to his senses, much like the prodigal son, and made this incredible declaration. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And catch this next line. It's amazing. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Friends, pride is that tipping point that leads to every epic story of failure. In our own day, Jim Collins, a, gr a great business guru and writer, writes in his book, How the Mighty Fall, page 20. He talks there about how this hubris born of success begins to grow, this thing called pride. And he writes, stage one kicks in when people become arrogant regarding success virtually as an entitlement. And they lose sight of the true underlying factors that created success in the first place. And then the downfall truly begins. Proverbs simply puts it like this. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Now what about you? Do you ever see pride in yourself? Sometime back, I was going to visit someone at Albany Medical Center, and I was riding on the elevator, and for whatever reason, the elevator seemed to be especially jammed that day with doctors and medical personnel. It was just full, and I wanted to go to the fifth floor, and the fifth floor was kind of lit up there, but it stopped on the fourth floor. And without thinking much, I got off the elevator quickly, and I'd only taken two or three steps. I was not even gone when I realized this isn't the fifth floor. This is the fourth floor. But instead of turn around and face all the people on the elevator again, do you know what I did? I just kept walking like I knew where I was going and was supposed to be here. Now, isn't that silly? I'd rather get off on the wrong floor than go back and admit I made a mistake. I goofed up. I was wrong. I doubt if I'm the only one in here that struggles with pride. James makes this amazing statement in chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud. If there's one you do not want opposing you, it's God Almighty himself. Proverbs 3.34 says he mocks proud mockers. But, and then James quotes that proverb, 
God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So I wonder if we could go on a journey today. Let's diagnose ourselves. Let's have the courage to actually put a spotlight on our hearts to examine how are we doing in this whole struggle between pride and humility. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go faster through the diagnosis part because I want us to get to the application part where we look at some antidotes for pride in our life. Because if you're anything like me, pride has probably caused you to make bad decisions in relationships, in ministry, in business, in life. Pride has probably caused you a lot of heartache through the years. I think it's one of the greatest maladies in our lives. So let's see how we can diagnose it and then deal with it. So let's start with this question. How do I know if I'm a proud person? Well, there's lots of signs, but James here in chapter 4, this section, this kind of teaching is known among scholars as paranesis. That means a bunch of sort of unrelated commands and teachings. And even though it is paranesis, there is sort of a loosely correlated theme of pride and humility through this passage. So that's what I'm trying to pick up on here. Let's see three marks of pride that come right out of this passage. If I'm a proud person, I tend to be deeply dissatisfied. There's sort of this cosmic dissatisfaction inside of me, if you will. I just, I don't even know what it is really, but I've got these desires that are just unfulfilled. Let's read here in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? Note this phrase. Your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now note that phrase, desires that battle within you. Within every proud person is a host of desires that drive and shape our behavior. And you say, well, what do they look like? What kinds of desires? The number one Christian book in the 20th century was called Mere Christianity. If you've not read that book, I highly recommend it. C.S. Lewis, of course, the eminent Oxford scholar, wrote that book that has received such high praise. Listen to what he says there. Pride gets no pleasure having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Remember the old fairy tale Snow White? The wicked queen says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And she's totally contented as long as it's her. But when the mirror says, oh no, there's one fairer, oh queen, she cannot rest until she has eliminated the competition. James says in chapter 3, 
where you have envy and selfish ambition. What are envy and selfish? Those are inner desires. You have disorder and every evil practice. And this is what leads to chaos in the home, in the workplace, in the church, in interpersonal relationships. All of this quarrelsome dysfunction is fueled by this deep sense of dissatisfaction from inside. That's a mark of proud people. What's another one? How can I know if I'm a proud person? Well, second, I tend to be hypercritical. You know anyone like that? I told you last week the story about young David Brainerd who was at Yale and was expelled from the school because of critical comments. And I think we all agreed, boy, those comments would be nothing today. We live in a hypercritical world where I would suggest pride is at an all-time high. Verse 11 reads, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Do you know people like that? Do you know critical people who tend to want to be judge and jury of others without recognizing their own sin? Or more important, do, do you see those tendencies in yourself? Why do we do that? Why are we so quick to just hear a story and immediately assume the worst and start being judge and jury? Why do we slander people like that? Why? I think it's often because subconsciously we think in putting others down, we're somehow lifting ourselves higher. Again, I quote from Lewis. He said, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free. A vice which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else. And of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. That is pride. Self-conceit. And he adds this phrase. I love this. All other sins are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride, he says, leads to every other vice and pride when it's unchecked and unchallenged makes a person kind of hypercritical there's this pompousness where they kind of pose as the judge of the universe boy they know how to set everybody straight if the world were only run by them it'd be a much better place trust me that's a proud person and it comes out in such subtle ways. But I want us quickly, because again, I want to get on to the antidotes. A third characteristic is I tend to boast about myself. If I'm a proud person, I tend to always kind of be talking myself up. Boasting. The word is egotistical. It, it means that through my words, I'm trying to build my image. And shape what others think about me. I also am a bit proud and presumptuous about what I can do. Particularly on into the future. Verse 13 reads, now listen you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow it says. 
What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And then he says in verse 16, as it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Proud people are braggarts by nature. Now, question. Is James saying here that it's wrong to make plans for the future? All you leaders out there, all you leaders who lead large organizations or small, is he saying, now wait a minute everybody, listen up, listen up, listen up. No strategic plans are allowed. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying God is against planning? I hope you know better than that. The Bible regularly exalts the virtue of thinking ahead and making wise plans. Proverbs are full of it. Jesus himself said, no one builds a tower unless he first, what? Sits down, counts the cost, crunches some numbers, makes some plans, lest he get halfway through. And he's embarrassed, he's unable to finish this project. Planning is extolled in the Bible. So what is James actually talking about here? What God is against is the kind of presumptuous plans for the future that leave God's will and God's sovereignty out of the equation. That sort of presumption reeks of arrogance and God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or that's the diagnosis. And if you've seen any of those signs in yourself, then we all, and I certainly see them in myself, we all should ask that question, how can God change me here? How can I cooperate? If, he, if it's really true that he gives us more grace when we need it, and that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, how do I posture myself to get the grace, right? That's the question. Man, I want the grace. I want God's grace to change me. I can't change myself. That's just self-help. I want God to change me because that's the kind of transformation that lasts. So what are the antidotes to my pride? Does God want me to just walk around constantly mumbling, oh, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm a nothing, I'm worthless, I'm horrible, I'm so proud and pompous, oh, I'm so wretched. Listen, someone who's constantly putting themselves down is narcissistic. It's weird, I know, but someone who's constantly putting themselves down and being self-deprecating are, are, is actually a person who's self-obsessed. As Lewis again so wisely said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. So how do we fulfill this Micah 6-8 challenge that the prophet Micah gave us so long ago. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly. To walk humbly with your God. How can you and I actually do that? And what does a truly humble person look like anyway? Well, I'm going to tell you up front here, before we even look at these three antidotes, we're basically going to take the three signs that James 4 gives us, and we're going to give the antidotes to each one of those. But before we do, 
I just want to tell you, I've concluded that a truly humble person is one who rejoices in others' successes and especially rejoices when God gets the credit that he deserves. I think that's one of the hardest things in the world, honestly. I think we do a lot better mourning with those who mourn than we do rejoicing with those who rejoice. I think, honestly, rejoicing and truly rejoicing and being happy when people get praise and credit, especially when God gets credit, I think that is one of the harder things in life. But that is a truly humble person. So what are the antidotes to the three marks of pride? Number one. The antidote for a deep inner dissatisfaction is, I will practice gratitude regularly. Instead of obsessing over what I don't have, I will regularly thank God for what I do. Psychology Today reported on some research conducted by Emmons and McCullough. They had two study groups with quite different assignments. The first study group was supposed to keep a gratitude journal. In other words, write down things they were thankful about. The second group was to keep a very different journal. So the first group, the Thanksgiving group, were supposed to go through their day trying to be more aware of what was happening. Kind of present in the moment. And they were supposed to write down things, good things, that they were really thankful for. Things that they could truly be grateful about. And so they did so. The second group was supposed to keep an annoyance journal. Wouldn't you love to keep one of those? No. Supposed to go through their day with a very different awareness. What's annoying me right now? Was it that driver who just flipped me off on the north way? Was it my fellow employee who just drones on and on and I can't? What is it? And they were supposed to keep an annoyance journal and write down all the things that annoyed them. This is an amazing study. You know what the results were? They found out that those who kept the gratitude, the Thanksgiving journal, had markedly greater increases of energy and enthusiasm, they slept better, and they were significantly less depressed. I pray every morning, and one of the key parts of my prayer time is deliberate thanksgiving to God. I highly recommend this. I honestly can go from being a little bit moody and melancholy and even sad and kind of ticked off. I can go in a matter of minutes to be exuberant with joy simply by counting my blessings. You ever tried that? Give it a try, honestly. This is the antidote. Deep inner dissatisfaction, the antidote is intentionally thank God. That's why the Bible says rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Antidote number two. For this whole thing of becoming hypercritical, I would say the antidote for that is I will acknowledge that I'm not God. Now that's a little harder than it may sound. You say, well, that's a no-brainer. Doesn't every sane person know that? Aren't they able to acknowledge that? Well, it's not as easy as it may sound. Acknowledge that I'm not God. In other words, there's a whole bunch of things I don't know. 
Can I tell you one of them? I don't know what a person's motives are. I may think I do. I may want to assume I do, but I don't know what anybody's motives are. I can't know that. The Bible's crystal clear that only God can judge motives, and he will one day. But I can't know what motives are. I don't know what's in somebody's mind. I can only make assumptions about that. There's so many things I don't know. I'm not God. Aren't you glad I shared that with you? Hey, 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 you're not either. Now remember that. Remember that in your relationships, okay? Now look at what he says here in verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Only one God? I'm not him. Every one of us has been guilty of pride, and every one of us could use at times some genuine humbling. An elderly man and woman were at a nursing home together, and they kind of got to know each other and began to share some meals together in this nursing home with all the other elderly people who were there. And as they shared some meals and spent some time together, this guy really became kind of infatuated with this elderly woman. And one evening, he actually proposed marriage to her. And she said yes. But the problem was, he woke up the next day and he couldn't remember her answer. And so he went and found her at breakfast and he said to her, I'm so embarrassed to ask you this. I know I asked you last evening to marry me, but I can't remember your answer. And she said, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you said something. My answer was yes, but I couldn't remember who asked me. <laughs> now, that's humbling. That, that's, that's humbling, and we, we all need that at times. Do you find it difficult to admit weaknesses? I do. And it's sad, though, when our pride holds us back from God's best for us. Can, can I tell you what I think I know about some, some dear people at Grace who are listening to me right now? Some who are listening online right now? Maybe Grace is or is not your church family. I think I know something. I believe that pride is holding some of us back from God's best for us. Let me explain that a little bit. I know, I know some parents and children who are kind of estranged. There's a strain there from each other. And you know what? Neither party is willing to just kind of break the ice and say, hey, let's talk. I'm sorry for the ways I've hurt you. And let's, let's move on together. Let's forgive and move on. The problem is pride. I know, I know a number of marriages right now that are really in trouble. In some cases, separations. In other cases, just, just cold war at home. And, and they look to be headed for divorce. But honestly, in some of those cases, and I know it always takes two, doesn't it? Yes. But if one or both of the parties involved there were just willing to Say, so you know what, I, I want to own my part in this. I have done this wrong and this wrong and this wrong, and I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? 
God has forgiven me. I just ask that you would forgive me. And it's my desire that we'd move on together. I believe some of those marriages, at least, could really be saved. But pride is the problem. I know some friends who are no longer friends, though they ought to be. They're good friends. They, they, they bring out the best in each other. But, but pride has, has kept humility at bay. Pride is the problem. I know a number of people at Grace who go on year after year after year after year after year bound in an addiction. And they could get help, but they're unwilling to say, you know what, this is out of control in my life. This is controlling me. It's stronger than I am. But their pride is keeping them from admitting that. Pride is the problem. It's sad. It's just sad is all I'm saying. When pride gets in the way of God's best for us. He has so much more. But don't let pride be the tipping point for an epic story of failure. Don't let that be you. Could today be the day you need to confess, I need a savior. I need a healer. I need a friend. I need to belong. I need to get honest and vulnerable with somebody. Could today be that day? Don't let pride hold you back. And finally, there's one other antidote here for boasting about myself. And I would put it to you like this. The antidote for, antidote for boasting is to learn to boast in Christ. I will boast in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, instead you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will. The Latin phrase is Deo Valenti. If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And you've probably met some Christians in your life who are saying on a regular basis, Lord willing, or if the Lord tarries, or if God wills it, I will do such and such. Now, let me just make a footnote there. I know what this says, but if you're around Christians who say, well, see you next week, Lord willing. Hey, going to go get my car washed, hope to drive it, Lord willing. Hey, would you pass the salt shaker there? If the Lord tarries and he's willing, I plan to use it. I just want to tell you, that gets annoying very quickly. That's all I'm saying. Please, please. God never intended for this to become a cliche. Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. He doesn't want us to be going around spouting that cliche all the time. That's not the point here, it's annoying, so if you do it, quit. <laughs> Please quit. You're driving people nuts, and it's not fulfilling the intention. What James is calling for is us to realize what the psalmist says in Psalm 31:15. My times are in your hand. Hey, God, I don't know the future. I know that this life down here is like the snap of a finger. It's like a mist. King James says, like a vapor, appears for a little time, then vanishes away. Moses wrote 
the length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. Over and over again in the Bible it talks about how fleeting and uncertain our life is. Our days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle it says in the book of Job. My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. Psalm 102 says, my days are like the evening shadow. They wither like grass. They vanish like smoke. Psalm 39, each man's life is but a breath. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. Are you getting the point? Words upon words they're piled, simile upon simile, metaphor upon metaphor, all saying the same thing. Life is brief. That's why I love that bumper sticker, life is short, eat dessert first. I love that bumper sticker. That's in line with the Bible. Maybe not the dessert part, but the, the life is short part, it is so fleeting. So in light of all that, we should say with the Apostle Paul, Galatians 6, may I never boast. <laughs> I don't know what tomorrow brings. I can't tell you I'm going to be here next week. I don't know if I'm going to be alive. I just got an email from a friend who pastors a church out in New England, and we're going to be at a conference together starting tomorrow evening just for a couple of days. It's an annual thing. He said, hey, I'm not going to make this part of the conference. Just had a board member pass away. 47 years old he was. 47 died suddenly. Life is so uncertain. You have no promise tomorrow. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Why? Because in the final analysis, what matters is not the proud titles or awards I may gain. It's the humble testimonies that people give about my life. I love the story that Tony Campolo shares. Tony was a part of a vibrant urban church in the city of Philadelphia for many years. And he said, I was so, so blown away and inspired one day when my pastor spoke to the graduating seniors in our church. And he started off in a way that shocked me. He looked at these graduating seniors, just teenagers, bright, vibrant, incredibly intelligent young people. And he said, children, he called them, you're going to die. I know you don't want to think about that. I know you don't think you're going to die, but you're going to die. And you know what? They're going to take you and drop you in a hole out in the cemetery, and then everybody's going to go back and eat potato salad at the church. He said, I'm like, whoa, why is he talking at a commencement ceremony about dying and being dropped in a hole in a cemetery? But then he really turned it, and I got where he was going. He said, I want to ask you, children, when you were born, you alone were crying and everybody else was happy. I want to ask you, children, when you die, are you alone going to be happy and everybody else crying? The answer to that question, children, depends 
on whether you live for titles or whether you live for testimonies. Are you going to live for what people stand around? When you die, are people going to stand around and recite all the titles and awards you gain? Or are they going to stand around with testimonies about what you did for them? Are they going to extol, oh, how proud you were in this world and all that you gained? Or are they going to give humble testimony to the servant of God you were and how you blessed them? And then Campolo said, my pastor, oh, he was amazing. He went into a poetic rip from the Bible. And he said it something like this. Are you going to have a title or a testimony? Pharaoh, he had the title. But Moses had the testimony. Nebuchadnezzar, he had the title. But Daniel had the testimony. Jezebel had a title, but Elijah, he had the testimony. Herod had a title. Oh, but John the Baptist had a testimony. Of course, the people were now responding and so involved and interactive. Yes, brother, preach it. Amen. And then he came to the climax where he said, Pilate, as he screamed it out, Pilate. He had a title, and then he waited what seemed like an eternity. But my Jesus, he had the testimony. Are you living for titles or testimonies? Pride versus humility. Which characterizes your life? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Father, your word gives us a lesson that pride is the tipping point for all epic stories of failure. We don't want that to be our story. So when we see evidence of pride in our lives, oh, help us to cry out to you for grace, more grace, to cooperate with that grace and to use the antidotes that you've given to address the pride in our lives. We want to live for testimonies, Lord. Not pompous titles. They're okay, as the preacher reminded the students. They're okay what you really want to live for. If it comes down to a choice between a title and a testimony, go for the testimony every time. That's what we want to go for. In Jesus' name.